it was summer. I had uh, embedded five students in a small village about 85 miles south of uh, Matamoros, uh, Mexico, uh, south of Brownsville. And uh, the project for the summer was for them to learn intensive language. At the same time, they would offer themselves in uh, programs uh, moving from farm village to farm village, teaching uh, children, doing a kind of a VBS kind of format, and uh, discipling youth. And uh, and it was uh, a program that we had done on a number of occasions while I was doing collegiate ministry at Stephen F. Austin. And so this particular summer, one of our uh, young ladies... uh, uh, and the, uh, uh, the students were embedded staying with families in, uh, in, in their homes because that's the quickest way to learn Spanish, really. And so, uh, so, they, uh, so Karen got sick. Uh, she, got, she contacted some form of a, a tropical disease. And uh, so the leadership of the little church there uh, in Pancho Villa was the name of the little town. We're concerned about her, and, and we uh, heard that what was going on, and so uh, and we called her folks, and, and we, were, we were thinking maybe we'll, you know, we'll take, get some medications to her and gave some instruction to the team leader. And, but, you know, bottom line, uh, about, uh, about midnight uh, one Saturday evening, I got a phone call uh, from Karen. This is back in the day before the cell phone was just everywhere, right? But I got a phone call. She'd made her way to the phone. And uh, she is scared to death because, uh, because this little Christian church there in Pancho Villa, in desperation, you know, uh, about her fever and condition, had called in the village witch doctor. And uh, Karen recounts to me that she, you know, is in this sort of, uh, you know, this feverish state running about 103 fever, and she kind of wakes up, and they are rolling an egg around on her body. And, uh, and so I said, Karen, I will call your folks, you know, put your team leader and put, you know, put Gary on the phone. And I said, Gary, you get her in the van and you get her to the emergency room at Brownsville Hospital and I will meet you there. I'll be there, you know, um, you know by 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. And man, I got on the, the plane. And uh, you see what happens often. There are many cultures who will adopt the faith, the Christian faith, but they've got vestiges of old belief systems and things that are back there. And, and if you know anything about some of those locations, like in Mexico, there can be a lot of animism, you know, that's, that's there, you know, of, of, and they believe that sicknesses are, are attacked from demonic forces or angelic or whatever. And, they, and, so, and so in this way, in, in, because of the, lack of opportunity for for medicines in some areas, then they revert back. And so it led to a confrontation between us, you know, as leadership, you know, with with the local church in this sense to say, you guys have got to make a decision about what you believe. Is Christ enough? That's exactly what's going on here in Colossae. And we talked about that last week. Now, we should be very thankful um, for this little Colossian church and thankful that they fell into such, um, under such uh, false teaching and threat because had that not happened, what, we wouldn't have the letter of Colossians, would we? 
No. You know, sometimes bad things bring good because God redeems that, you know, for us as, as it happened here with Paul and with this little church at Colossae. So we can be grateful and, and really, would we have any of the letters of Paul probably if there hadn't been problems that began to arise in the church and often with theology. Now, and we have talked in the past as we're looking at the Colossian letter, and it's not just the Colossian letter, but it's all of Paul's letters, that Paul's letters always involve two things, and he always starts in the same place. He starts with the vertical indicative, with the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And what it means. We are grounded in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. The vertical indicative. Then the latter half of the letter will be the horizontal imperative. How should we live as believers who are rooted in the truth of the gospel? And so we talked last week, you know, when we, when, that we have finally come to that place where Paul is beginning to address the false teaching, the Colossian heresy, as it's often called. And it is a, you know, it is a mix and a mashing together of some, some, some kind of mystical thinking, pagan religion, Judaism, angel. It's, a, it's, a, it's syncretism. It's what it is. And we talked about the fact that with the growth of Gnosticism in the, in the, at the end of the first century and into the second and into the third century, is that Gnosticism had this ability to just sort of suck different belief systems in and kind of just incorporate them in and sort of validate the Gnostic belief system by its association with these other belief systems. And so there... So when Paul outlines this, we, we, we started this discussion last week with talking about the description in Colossians for the syncretism, what's being taught, then the source of that. And, and we mentioned that there were, there were four symptoms or, or pieces of this syncretism that are manifesting themselves that are, that are openly being taught there at Colossae. One of them is that it's rolled out as a philosophy a love of wisdom, but it's really an empty, hollow, meaningless, deceptive. It's not a philosophy at all, Paul is saying. It's not the love of wisdom. It's just, it's just a form of a, of a pagan religious system, this proto-Gnosticism that's being rolled out. And, and, and so Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, in, in, in verse 8, by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it's rolled out as a philosophy, you know, and, and it's really a system that's really a pagan system of proto-Gnosticism. There is legalism also that's being taught, and that's more than likely from the Jewish element there, the keeping of rules and Sabbaths and, and, you know, and, and anything that's legalistic, uh, is, is being taught, adherence to the law. And then there's angel worship, the worship of elemental spirits. And we talked about how, you know, this Gnostic belief system, because the, of the belief in all matters evil, it, that God, this pure and holy God, has to emanate himself in, in all these 
eon, aeons and or angelic or elemental spirits who come down, each one a little dirtier, until they create a world that's in which all matter and everything is evil. And so you have all these, the Gnostics were teaching that you've got to appease all of those spirits. You've got to, you've got to take all of them into account because there, you know, there are many, you know, on, this, on that chain of command from God, from a holy God, down to this evil earth on, in, which we, in which we live. And so, uh, so that's a piece of this, this, uh, um, this doctrine that's being taught. And then there is asceticism. Because of their belief that all matter is evil, the human body is inherently evil, and it, so it has to be punished, tortured, deprived. In some way, it has to be kept in its place. So this is, the, this is what's going on there, you know, and the, there, you know, there, it's, the sources are a pagan element. There's a Jewish element, a, kind of a Jewish piece of that with its legalism. And, and then Paul says, the, then there's a Christian Source. I mean, there are people that are they're calling themselves believers that are also promoting this false theology. And he says that's why it's so incredibly dangerous. You know, and so uh, what we want to get to today, though, is to talk about the solution. Uh, the solution. Um, we've talked a little bit about the, you know, the syncretism and the source. Now, so let's talk about the solution. So we'll look at, uh, at uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, and we will um, we'll begin with, uh, with verse 8 in a moment. Now, how many of you got one of these when you walked in? A little piece of paper that has the names of God on it. Did you get one? Okay. Uh, man, I'm sorry. When that Xerox down, some of you, even your bifocals aren't going to work, right? But maybe you can see that. I, I think, Jr. can you, if you got something, you can kind of scroll the names of God. Yeah, here we go. This is the list. I just I took that list right out of the Experiencing God workbook uh, and Henry Blackaby's work, uh, and th- these were the names of God the Father that were identified in that uh, uh, in that book. So there are about 140 names. Now, here's here's what I want you to do for just a moment. Okay, would you humor me here? Okay, I want you to. If you can't read this list, look at that one, okay? Um, JR is going to try to scroll it up for us. I want you to focus. I mean, follow the eyes of your heart for a minute, and I want you to focus on one of the attributes of God that's on that list. Just focus on one, would you? Follow the eyes of your heart. Maybe it's how you have experienced God in some way in your personal journey of faith. Would you do that? with me for a moment let's just just take a moment just to be silent before the lord i just want you to just follow the eyes of your heart because there's a long list there and just until your eyes fall on one and i want you to lock on to one would you would you do that Some characteristic attribute of God, some name for God found in Scripture, born out of the experience of either the Hebrew or the Christian, you know, in Scripture. You got one? Okay. All right. 
Call them out. I'm hard of hearing. My wife tells me that all the time. Call them out. Call out your word, would you? Just let's go. It's just salt and pepper. Okay. All right. Let's take let's take a few at one at a time in this section. Stronghold. Faithful. Father. Friend of. Source of strength. Say it loud. King of kings. Say, I am I'm hard of hearing. Okay, this section. Creator. Creator. Shepherd. Shepherd. True God. True God. Confident. Confident. Sovereign. Sovereign. My hope. My hope. Awesome. What about this section? Never failing. Never failing God. The rock in whom I take refuge. The one who sustains me. Lord God Almighty. Living Father. Anybody else? you just dying to call it out? Isn't it great to hear the names of God? Folks, Paul says in verse 9, In him... In Christ, all the fullness, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That's the first part of his solution. The recognition of who Jesus is. He embodies in his flesh all the fullness of God. Every name that you just named, you know, is found also in Christ. It's all part of of his being. For in him, the whole fullness, verse 9, the pleroma, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the word dwells, we talked about this some weeks ago, it's kat or keo. And it is the word, it is, you know, and the, the Greek is very specific on some words about house, about about dwelling places or houses. And this word is very specific. This is the permanent dwelling place in the mind of the, you know, of the, of the, of the early believer or, or, or the, the reader of Scripture. would reckon it. Boy, this is a permanent dwelling place. So, so Paul is saying it, 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 that in Christ we find the fullness of deity permanently dwelling in him. Now look at verse 10. And you have been filled. Pay pleromenoi. You have been filled. You have been, some translations would say, made complete. Look at the New Living Translation. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. I hope you see where Paul is going with this. Okay, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And now he comes to dwell in you. What do you get? You get everything you need. You get the fullness. You are filled up. You are made complete. And, and you know, Paul never messes around with a verb tense. You know what the verb tense on that word is? 
Pay pleromenoi. Perfect tense in Greek. And perfect tense conveys the idea of something that has happened and is eternal. If it's in perfect tense, it's something that has taken place and the consequences of the verb are eternal. You get it? Are you feeling a little more secure if you're in Christ? You should. You should. You shouldn't be on shaky ground. Paul is saying, you know, in response to all the false teaching, he's saying, in Christ, you have the fullness of God. You have the whole pleroma of God in him. And now he dwells in you and brings fullness and completeness to you. And it's perfect tense. The effects of which are three. You know, we are complete. We are made complete in three ways. That's where we begin. We pick up with verse 11. You know, I just want to hit these three real quick. You know, in him we, are com- we have a complete change of heart. We have a complete forgiveness. We have complete freedom in him. That's Paul's emphasis. So look at verse 11. Complete change of heart. In him also, and you're going to hear in him, in him, in him. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's important that you hear that. It's made without hands. What does that mean? By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. With him. See, there is a circumcision that is done by hand. The commandment in Scripture was that every male child on, after, on their eight, the eighth day after birth was to be circumcised, the cutting away of the foreskin, you know, and, and, and that would mark them as, as the people of God, the children of Israel, you know, for, you know, for, for time on. The problem the prophets point out in the Old Testament is that you can do the right, you can do the ritual, but, you don't, but that doesn't mean that the heart is changed. Jeremiah talks about that several times. But in chapter 9, he says, The Lord declares, I will punish the circumcised yet uncircumcised. What does he mean? And then he explains it in the next verse. The whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in their hearts. You know, they've been circumcised. They've gone through the ritual. But their hearts have not been changed. That's the that's the conundrum that's the problem and and jeremiah answers it in chapter 31 he says just says you know that that time will come when i'll make a new covenant in which i will write i will write it upon their hearts i'll change their hearts and when you come to christ there's a complete change that comes and where does it start and in here but it will work its way out into everything before he's done. There's a change of heart. 
Now, the false teachers are promoting ritual and law. And the false teachers are saying, hey, you need to get circumcised. Even though you guys were Gentiles, even though you're, you, know, you didn't grow up in the house, y'all need to get circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, what's needed is the circumcision of the heart. You know, the, uh, a circumcision not made with hands, with human hands. A circumcision that only Christ can complete, that Christ can do in, a, in the life of the follower who comes to follow him, who is identified with Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. Now, the practice of Christian baptism, see, Paul, you know, Paul introduces this idea and says, says it's the same with, with a Christian baptism. You know, the, the outward ritual of dunking someone in the water is meaningless if there's not been a change within of the heart. You know, the, the outward ceremony of baptism is to be an indicator of what's already taken place in the heart of the believer at conversion. And so Paul is saying, at conversion, when you, when you trusted Christ, you were identified with him in his death, in his burial, and also in his resurrection. And you were raised to new life with him. And so Paul can say with boldness in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that any man who is in Christ is a new creature. New creature, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There is, there is a transformation that's taking place, and, and it's the transformation of the heart. There's complete change in the heart, okay? Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it, I'll say it a million times if I have to. You know, you know because as a Christ follower, as a Christ follower, I sin all I want to. The difference is, God changed my want to. Do you get it? If you're a believer, he's changed your heart. He's moved your heart in with his. And he begins to change your want to. Your desires begin to change. You know, your perception you know, there's a shift that takes place. And, and if that hasn't happened for you if, you, if 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 Christ hasn't changed your want to, you need to think about whether or not you really know Jesus. Because I'm telling you, perfect tense, there's completeness and a complete change that's coming. You know, and it's an internal change, a change of the heart, a circumcision of the heart, a baptism of the heart. Those symbols are not unimportant, but they don't accomplish what must be accomplished, can only be accomplished in Christ, and that is the change of the heart. Okay? And so there's the conundrum. This is the problem that the Colossians are having. Okay? They've come to faith in Christ excited about the fact that Jesus died on a cross for them and they've turned their heart over to Jesus and now they have a clear sense of what's right and what's wrong you know they they have the want to is there but they're just struggling with this dualistic nature of the Christian life the flesh warring against the spirit some of us know that we've been there 
We came to faith. We thought that was going to fix all our problems. And then we woke up a few days later and realized I still have all the same issues and problems and temptations. And that stuff didn't go away. The world's still right there in front of me. And so I've been, you know, Christ has paid the penalty of my sin. But man, I'm struggling. And the, 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 the heretics there have moved right into that void to say, oh, see, there's something else you need. You need the help of angels, and you're not, you're not, you know, you're not sacrificing to the elemental spirits, and you're not, you're not rigidly keeping the wall. And you know what you need to do is you need to start practicing asceticism. You need to beat yourself up. And some of us know what that's like. You know, we do stuff wrong, and then what do we do? We may not physically beat ourselves, but we do beat ourselves up. And there's a lot of Christians that fall by the wayside because they don't know what to do with that, with this dualistic nature of man. That now I have the Spirit of God, the, you know, the, 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 the presence of Christ in me, and my desire is changed, and I want to do right, but I, but I keep being drawn back, and I keep wrestling and struggling with the, the old nature. Go read Romans chapter 7. You know, Paul talks about, man, I agree with the law, but I, I can't keep it. The very thing I want to do, I'm not able to do. The, the thing I don't want to do is the thing I find myself doing. I, you know, and he comes, he says, wretched man that I am. You see, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thank God, he says, in through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's already been done. That's the vertical indicative, you see. But so there is this complete change of heart, and then there's complete forgiveness. And that's so important that we anchor our lives in, in, in Christ's saving work and, and forgiveness. I, 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 I said to you that this is what Paul does in Colossians. Again and again and again, he's going to lift the gospel up like a, like a beautifully cut diamond, and he's just going to turn it just a little bit. He's going to do it here again. He, he, just, he lifts up the gospel and says, this is the basis of our life. It's in Christ. It's in him. Now, let's just turn that a little bit and let you look. He says there's complete forgiveness, and he uses some, some really specific words here in, in verses 13, 14. And you... You were dead in trespasses. You were covered up dead. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made, God made a life together, made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our sins, all our trespasses. The word forgiveness is charismenos. It's char- charis is the word for grace. Forgiveness, grace. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Canceling. You know, that's a, it's an interesting word in the original language because it denotes this idea. There's a word picture um, of, of, um, that relates back to the scribes of that day. You know, we go down to Staples and get reams of paper almost for free, right? In biblical times, they didn't have paper, and it was very, that was a very expensive thing to have anything that, which you could really write. And so at the time that Paul is writing this letter, they used basically two things. Papyrus, which was, which was from, you know, from, made from reeds, marsh reeds. Or they used vellum, which was made from animal skins. But they used inks in that day that did not have acidic 
content to them so that the ink the inks did not etch into the materials on which they were writing so on a very expensive piece of papyrus or a piece of vellum they they would not they would not waste any of it and so if they if there was a mistake or or, or there was some document that was outdated they didn't throw it away they would take a sponge and they would wipe off the ink they could cleanse the that non-acidic acid ink off of the page. And Paul uses a very specific word used for the scribes of that day to say Jesus has canceled. He has washed clean. He has, he has washed away all of your, your sins. The record of your debt. And, and uh, this is an interesting word uh, as well uh, because it's a cherographon. It's a, uh, literally, it's the idea of a handwritten autograph. And the best way to describe it, it would be like an IOU. Anybody ever written an IOU? Seriously. You ever given someone an IOU? You sat down with your own handwriting, you wrote out an IOU, and then you signed your name to it and you gave it to them? It's, that's the picture of a handwritten, handwritten debt note. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's a pretty exact word here. And, and Paul says he has canceled this, this debt. He's canceled your IOU. Now, the beautiful thing about this idea is, is that the only way you can write an IOU is if you acknowledge personally your debt because you have to acknowledge your debt and write in your handwriting what you owe. You get it? This isn't a generality thing. This isn't a, this isn't a oh, Lord, forgive me my sins. Paul is saying there's a consciousness on your part you know what I'm saying, of, of, of sin. And that when you acknowledge, when you acknowledge yours, in, in Celebrate Recovery, we take people through step studies. And in that fourth step, we start writing our inventory. And it's amazing. You know, when, when I began to write my inventory doing the fourth step, that was grueling. Because I had to let the Spirit of God searched my heart and I had to say to the Spirit of God, expose anything in me that causes sadness or grief to the Spirit of God in me because I want, you know, I want, I want it out. And so I had to write it all down in my own handwriting. That's the picture in this passage. That, you know, that I acknowledge my sin, you know, and I lay it before Christ and then the, the minute I lay it before Christ based on the cross, he washes it clean. It's a beautiful picture. Complete forgiveness. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean? With its legal demands. That's simply Paul acknowledging here that a just and holy God, he can be loving, but he's also just. And a just and holy God does not overlook sin. Sin. A price has to be paid for sin. So this breaking of the law this trespass in our life, there is a, a legal demand that it has to be paid for. Now, the beauty of it is, how does 
you get paid for. Next phrase. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a great picture? Roman soldiers at this day and time would place on a placard. They would, they would inscribe on a board, you know, uh, or a plaque, something. They would, you know, when, when someone was crucified, they would write their crimes on that board. And then they would nail it above the head of the criminal. You remember they did something like that at Jesus' crucifixion, right? Except instead of the, because Pilate proclaimed him innocent, Pilate had them write the king of the Jews in several languages. You see, but the common practice of the Roman soldier was when you were crucified, everyone was going to know why you were being crucified because here, is your, here were the, you know, the charges, things that you were convicted of, you see. And, and essentially what Paul is saying is what Christ has done, he's taken all of your sin and trespass, everything that's written down about you, and, and it has been nailed over his head because he's dying. He has died on a cross for you. Couldn't be any more personal than that. There is complete change of heart. There's complete forgiveness. Perfect tense, complete forgiveness in Christ. And then there's complete freedom. Look at verse 15. I love this image. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now remember, one of the reasons why Paul's, you know, these paragraphs are a little difficult is because the Colossians read them and they know what's being taught there. I mean, they know the kind of the gist of what's being taught there. We're, we're, we're looking at these texts and trying to figure out well, what was really going on there. So it makes it a little more complicated for us. You know what I'm saying? So, so, but, so they have been basically paying some kind of homage to these elemental spirits, these angelic, these aeons. And, and Paul just lumps them together as rulers and authorities. Those who kind of rule over the planets, who, who, the elemental spirits who kind of govern the universe, who think they have control. He says he has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him and it's a it's a word picture you know when a when a roman general would would make a conquest some significant conquest of some country he would get a parade in rome and they would, they, you know, they'd bring him in and they'd put him in a chariot and they'd put the diadem, you know, that, you know, that the little crown on his head. And, and he would parade through the streets of Rome, but not just the Roman general, but everyone who he had conquered, the kings and the princes and their families and, you know, any, any, from this, all the dignitaries and, you know, anybody that was, a, it was anybody that used to be, used to be important, was paraded in the streets behind his chariot and that's the image that paul's giving us is that you know when christ in his victory disarmed all rulers and authority and put them in his parade exposing them to open shame what what are we afraid of ever thought about that if you have christ in you who is the fullness of god and he's now living in you, why are you afraid? Who could you be afraid of? Or what? He's saying you have 
complete and total freedom in Christ. You are free in him. So here's what my summary is, okay? And, and so I'm, I'm going to assume you, you're like the Colossians, okay? There you were, dead in trespasses and sin. You were just bent. You, were just, you just leaned. You just tilted, you know, what, towards sin. You could not dig yourself out. There was no way. Because, you see, because you just were, you were dead to, to spiritual things. You were, you know, like Paul says, you were spiritually appraised. You were, you know, you just, you were non-responsive. You ever try to wake up a dead person? How you do that? It's kind of difficult. You, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And see, and then what happened was, is that in the preaching of the gospel, in the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit of God began to work on your life, and the Spirit of God brought some, you know, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, brought you to a place where you could make a choice. You could choose Christ or you could choose to continue to live in your junk. Okay? And so let's say you, you chose Christ. Okay? So now, now what happens? Does it go like this? See? No, what the Colossians are experiencing, the same thing you're experiencing, it's like this. You now have, you are now free. There's nothing, there's no constraint. You don't have to sin. You you know, you don't have to fall prey to to their tricks and their schemes and their deceit. You you have the Spirit of God in you. You you, you have, if you, you know, if you continue to grow in relationship with Him and knowledge and awareness of Him, you you know, then you will maintain this from time to time. Yeah, you. In your humanity, yeah. You're saying, but, you know, but the experience will be for the Christian. You will make a choice to walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh. But you will have a free choice. That's how it works. Now, we're going to talk more about that because in chapter 3, Paul, you know, in the context, we know that they were struggling with this thing of obedience and falling back into sinful patterns and being overcome with temptation and feeling like these, you know, they were being, the angels were, you know, the demons were getting around them and, you know, and Paul's going to address that in chapter 3. So we are finally at the place, folks, where we're, we're, we are, we're at the end of the vertical indicative and next week we get to start the horizontal imperative took us a while didn't it thank you for your patience in that there might be somebody here why is my Christian experience not on any kind of stable ground Do you know him? I'm saying, because when you invite Christ into your life, the Spirit of God comes in fullness, and, and, there, and your heart is, is changed in a moment. It'll work its way out over time. You know, but that's, you can make that step today. 
And you can know, you can walk from this plane, know you are completely, totally forgiven. Not because of anything you were able to do, but because, because he took your sins, your written IOU of, of debt, and he washed it away and, and, and nailed it to his cross. You're completely forgiven. And you are free. You don't have to live imprisoned by old ways and old appetites and old patterns. And, you know, you, you, there's freedom in Christ. Complete and total freedom in Christ. You can begin to live in a balanced kind of way. Let's pray.